Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. All right. Hello, everyone, and hello. good morning, Nina. Yeah. Good morning, uh, Matt. Yeah, good morning. Uh, look, our intrepid leader, Andrew, has uh, left us today. He's abandoned us. Abandoned us. For nicer weather. He's not thought about the work design for no. us by all this chat about psychosocial risks. But we know all about psychosocial risks, so we put in our own control. This is our car- paper cutout, Andrew, joining us today as <laughs> he joins us live on messages. <laughs> he didn't know that was going to appear, so enjoy paper yeah. cutout, Andrew, <laughs> to uh, watch over us as we go through the, the briefing today. Um well, look, a fair bit of news this week, before we get to our sort of big topic, um, which is obviously about the war for talent and poaching, a fair bit of news about a lot of different things. Yeah. First thing we wanted to chat to you about today really was uh, Labor's job suck. You know, it's coming up next week. If you've heard anything about it really in the media over the last couple of weeks, it's all about, been about the politics of it, yeah. who's attending, who's not attending, like it's, you know, the, you know, the bell of the ball or something <laughs> like that. Um, but what we've done is we've gone through and we've had a look at what some of the real key things are for you that are going to be discussed in this because it's going to set the IR and employment policy agenda for the Labor government for the next three years. So first one, Labor said they're going to rebalance the Fair Work Commission. A couple of different options on the table there yeah. Nina, for us to look at. It's really important as well because pretty much in the next 20 months, I think most of the senior Labor That's um, right. appointees will leave. Yeah, exactly right. Vice President and President of the Fair Work Commission to retire and be replaced. Mm-hmm. So Labor will absolutely be replacing those individuals and really setting the tone with the policy platform of the Commission moving forward. But interestingly enough, you know, lots of different ideas, obviously, to, as they say, rebalance it because of all the Liberal appointees over the last nine years. One is abolish it. Started afresh, uh, you know, which is just seemingly a pretty extreme thing, but it's been done before. Otherwise, maybe just, you know, expanding out its uh, powers, establishing this fair work court, perhaps. Yeah, so that's an idea that's can, been thrown around a lot. That's yeah. right. So get some new members in that way. So just broaden what it does. So lots of interesting things. Be a very keen eye on the shape of the Fair Work Commission out of this for the next couple of years. Now, Nina's topic, <laughs> I riled her up on, on the green, in the green room beforehand. Oh, lots uh, of arguments. What, <laughs> what the unions are suggesting that they want to talk about at the, uh, at the summit. A couple of four real big things, but uh, one I know the bargaining fees has really drawn your eye, Amina. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous. So basically the unions want to say that if they have assisted in negotiating the enterprise agreement and the other employees who aren't union members benefit, they should be able to charge them for the term of the agreement. I think it's about 70% of the member fees or something like that. But it's just not going to make any sense. It's clearly just a money grab. No, that's very, look, I think it's very fair. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't seem like the sort of constructive thing about IR issues more generally. No. It does seem to be really union focused. And they haven't thought about how it will work. Like sometimes employees represent themselves. What if there's multiple unions involved? How is it going to work? Yeah, it's a bit, um, there's like a nuance there, I think is the key thing. Oh. You know? So it's, uh, look, that'll be an interesting one to watch. Another one, uh, they're talking about wanting to have a ban on unpaid overtime. Bit of a blunt instrument yeah. we were chatting about before. Yeah, exactly. Well, overtime's not even an entitlement no, that's under, right. for award free employees under. Um, the Fair Work Act, but like we've been speaking about numerous occasions, we've moved to flexible work, it has led to some people working more, but that really is a discussion that employees and employers should be having amongst themselves, thinking about work design. It's not really something you can whack with one. No, time. that's right. I think, yeah, really the union's sort of a blunt instrument solution here to a problem, again, that's a bit nuanced that needs a little bit more detail to it. The other one, big one, the overhauling the sponsorship system. So an interesting imposition, I think, for 
for a lot of our clients who deal with labour hire and international labour, a bit of an odd proposal that the union have here. Yeah, so the union are wanting to do a program where labour hire employees get 30% more than the medium average wage compared to, for the same job, compared to local employees. And the premise behind it is they're intending to disincentivise the hiring of overseas labour and focus on Australian labour. But what they haven't considered is there is a huge shortage of workers across all industries, which yeah, something is we're what we're going to talk about yeah, later. Yeah. And just there's going to be so many problems if you're needing to bring in this labour hire who most of the time are on three, four-year contracts and they're going to be paid triple the amount of the local workers. That's just a recipe for disaster. Oh, absolutely, Nana. I think, look, it's, it's again, you know, to, to, to repeat it, blunt instrument again yeah. for this. You know, at, at its heart, Nation wants to prioritise employing its own people, fine, but the way they're sort of approaching this, I think it's going to cause a yeah, bit of issue. Yeah, haven't thought about the practical implications. No, no, that's right. And then, look, the final point is, look, you know, this whole issue about the unilateral termination of enterprise agreements. Very interestingly, sort of the Labor government's made a big deal out of this, so have the unions. Some stats out from sort of the applications last year, 99 occurred in total. Only three of those weren't opposed by the union or had no one appear against them at all. So what is being built up to be this really huge issue, I think, probably a little bit smaller than it seems on the surface. So we're very interesting. We'll keep you updated as the Job Summit continues, but some real interesting practical discussions leading out of that. Interesting case we've had out sort of this week in a comment about sexual harassment to Nina, something I think we get asked about by clients all the time. And what happens when conduct that was welcome at the beginning is then claimed to be unwelcome after the fact? We've had an interesting Supreme Court decision on that one. Yeah, so the Supreme Court decision was really a procedural decision, but the key things we need to look at are the facts of this one. So it was a circus performer who said she had an unwelcome sexual advance by the chairperson of the circus, and she actually wrote a book about the encounter, a fictional book based on fictional characters which stepped through what had happened. And as a result, the chairperson wrote an email saying it was an autobiographical account and that was enough to show that it was a complaint and he basically blacklisted her in the industry. So she lost about six years' worth of work. And so she filed a claim under the Equal Opportunity Act claiming victimisation and sexual harassment. And what was really unique is the kiss that they were talking about at the time was completely consensual. Yeah, and welcomed yeah. by her own she, In fact, I think she said she had butterflies or something in the description of the book. But what happened straight after is she got a call from his wife, she didn't know he was married at the time, who said, please don't break my marriage. Her friends were contacting her mm. saying, don't be a homewrecker. And she then realised, look, she didn't want to be part of this. And the Supreme Court said that, look, the definition under the Equal Opportunity Act mm-hmm. is to consider in all the circumstances. So something that could be welcome at the time can later actually be unwelcome knowing all the circumstances behind it, such as the fact that if they were married. But that said, it doesn't mean that in situations where they were in a completely consensual relationship, they later break up, they try to then rewrite history. It's not opening the door for that. No, it's absolutely right. It's not a Pandora's box in that sense. It's really about this deception. I think the key at the heart of this case is that what she believed at the time was actually based on false pretenses, which, in fairness, the alleged sexual harasser had created by not giving her all the information. So an interesting one, I think, just to Mm -hmm. keep in mind, sexual harassment, what might have been welcome at the time, can absolutely become unwelcome, really. Something we've always, in fairness, really advised clients 
clients on. We're now getting some authority from the Supreme Court yeah. saying, look, this is very possible. So it's a really good shift in that sense. Look, another really great bit of news from the Fair Work Commission announcing that, look, on a fortnightly basis, they're going to be releasing uh, wages data from enterprise agreements. We used to have to wait for this quarterly. So there used to be quite a gap. But now, really, I think in light of the fact that inflation so high, the pressure's so different, uh, the Commission have said, look, we're going to start giving you this data uh, more regularly, data, yeah. re- really real-time data. And look, interestingly, what it is showing, perhaps unsurprisingly, although not exactly what we had been seeing on a quarterly basis, um, at least since sort of the start of this inflation spike, uh, union agreements actually having about a 0.5 percentage increase higher to the base wage rate than non-union EAs, but both staying quite far under uh, inflation, really yeah. sort of 25 to 3.5%, which is a really fascinating development. But look, it's a really great source. We're going to keep using that into the future and rely on that when we're giving you advice about enterprise agreements and what's a good wage rate to put in there. Another sort of, you know, I tried to fit in a don't set and forget around this, um, <laughs> but don't set and forget your PPE doesn't quite work as well. But, Nina, an interesting sort of comment about PPE here, a little bit of an interesting case about where what not to do. Yeah, as they often are. Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> so, uh, Viva basically deals with hydrofluoric acid at one of their oil refineries. So workers have to test samples maybe twice a week. One of the workers got injured because it leaked out, ended up in hospital with burns and a sore throat. What was really interesting is for years, I think up to 2014, Viva had always implied the correct PPE, so minimum Class B or Class C in PPE. Then they unilaterally decided by themselves, no, yeah. we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to lower it down to downgrade to Class A, which mm. is just helmet, gloves and goggles, which is completely insufficient yeah, when insufficient, dealing with acid. Mm. And the court basically said this is ridiculous. You cannot unilaterally decide for yourself what is appropriate. You know, you have to take steps which are reasonably mm. practical and while resourcing is one of them they had already proved that they could afford it yeah, and that's they just right. chose to that's stop right, it by yeah. themselves so not necessarily a new lesson but look no. a great reminder again if you've got best practice keep best practice yeah. you know it's not just enough to just you decide don't to move the poles about what yeah, is yeah, it best practice yeah, yeah. Um, And look, finally, sort of news items this week. Look, a really interesting high court decision out in the defamation space about Google. Look, really finding that Google is not a publisher for defamation when it it provides links to otherwise defamatory articles online. And look, I I think real chilling or interesting effect here in the context of the workplace relations space because, you know, I'm sure all of us have dealt with sort of ex-employees, yeah. you know, posting things on social media, blogs, etc., that are largely defamatory. Now, they might be a hard target to go after because they don't have funds. They're not really, it's not a lucrative sort of piece of litigation. Google might have been a sort of interesting target for that sort of content. But effectively, what the High Court have said is, look, you can't knock on Google's door to have them take no. the links away. So have to be really careful here. Make sure you've got good social media policies, of course, in your workplace to prevent this sort of stuff from getting out there online to begin with. But just a reminder, you know, it's getting harder and harder yeah. in this space um, to Gonna go after. to go the employees. That's yeah. right. You know, not a lot of people with a lot of money. All right, well, look, on to the topic of today. Um, you know, look, I think, um, you know, poaching in the war for talent, I think it's it's a really uh, timely sort of reminder. I think everyone across the board would listening in today would say, look, it uh, doesn't matter what industry you're in, doesn't matter what you're doing, the labour market, it, it, labour is scarce. Yes. It, it is hard to it's- get 
you know, as I commented earlier, um, you know, not, it's not even necessarily about good or bad workers. It's just workers at all. Right? There's no workers anywhere. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't matter where you are or what industry you're in. There's labour scarcity. And, look, um, Sophie's put together a really helpful sort of slide for us, I think, with some real headline numbers that just give some real context to why this is a problem. Um, so if you don't mind chucking that up on the screen now, if we have it. Uh, but we'll talk to it while it, it magically works its way sort of in the background. There's magic in the background. Uh, yeah. No, that's all right. Well, look, um, unemployment, you know, 3.4%. It's the lowest it's been since the 1980s, which is, you know, well before our time. Uh, <laughs> sorry for those at home. Uh, you know, Are you it's, rubbing um, it in? No, a little Andrew's bit, a little bit. While Andrew's not here. That was an Andrew dig, yeah. which, uh, to, the, to the cardboard cutout, Andrew, which is obviously huge. I mean, that's such yeah. a low rate of unemployment. Job vacancies up at 111.1% since pre-pandemic, which is just just crazy, you know, to think about it in that way. You know, Australia has the second most severe labour and skill shortage in the developed world. In the world, yeah. uh, Only behind Canada. Only after Canada, which is, you know, a crazy sort of statistic. And really fascinatingly, you know, 37% of employers in a particular survey done by the National Skills Commission say we've got vacancies open for more than a month at this stage. Oh, here's the hey, slide. Hey, there we hey. go. So, I mean, really the picture shows it, you know, it's, it's sort of crazy sort of stuff out there. And all of this obviously is COVID-related legacy impacts, yeah. you know. Obviously, start of the pandemic, a lot of international labour went home. Borders have been sort of opening up quite slowly. The yeah. focus seems to be, I think, domestic tourism, tourism yeah. which is all well and good for a particular subset of the economy, but not bringing in, loosening those labour rules to get skilled international workers into Australia. Huge problems, yeah. yeah. And then really mixing in with a lot of other sort of realities, things that were different yeah. things, we're seeing quiet quitting, things of that sort yeah. of nature. Yeah, look, I think everyone focuses on the border closures and the lack of labour, overseas labour, mm. but there's like wider impacts from the pandemic, even in the white collar professions. We're seeing, look, people reframing how they want to do work. Mm. We've spoken heaps about psychological regs, quiet quitting, people realising they want more flexibility, mm. they want better options and realising that they can ask for it because there is a labour shortage. Mm. Now what kind of employee value proposition you put out there really matters because like we saw with parental leave, for example, a lot of the law firms put out what they thought were groundbreaking things and now it's just the same as everyone else. That's right. It's the standard it's moving expectation. So far. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a really different environment for things like that than it was, say, five years ago. Yeah. I mean, really employees understand that, they are the ones who sort of have the negotiating power in this space. So the expectations are great and they're really grand. So, you know, and it's sort of like a, a practical sense, what we're sort of saying is, look, you really do need to look at what your employee value proposition is. And, and we acknowledge and we recognise, you know, there's only so much money in the bank when it yep. comes to this, you know, but it's not just about REM. You know, you can't just no. be adding up and adding up and adding up REM because, Really, there are other cost pressures, supply-side pressures from COVID still that are impacting that. But what we're saying is have a look at your sort of policies. You know, have a think about what is your recruitment policy, what is sort of you, are you putting out there publicly? You know, there's a lot of talk about Gen Z and millennial workers. They're looking for what your brand does what it says, what its values are. And a focus on well-being. Like, it's important to employees now. It's not Money's not enough anymore. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, lots of different factors there. What are we talking about? Sort of, you've tried all those sorts of measures, right? You've done your policies, you've, you've gone out to market, you've had the job listing up there. It's quite logical to take your mind to the next step, which goes, well, look, I know my competitor has excellent employees. 
I'm going to try and poach those. And then so what are some examples of what we're talking about that aren't poaching and then what are some what we're talking about that are? Yeah, look, I think it's a confusing thing because it's quite nuanced. So we, we were discussing heaps of examples. Yeah. Even I got kind of confused. Yeah. But for example, I put to you, what happens if, say, FCW has a vacancy? Dylan, our HR manager, says, oh, look, we really need someone in the admin team. You go home and you talk to one of your friends because mm. you think they'd be a great fit. And then they directly apply. Yeah, so that's sort of not poaching. No, you know, that's yeah. really not what it's we're talking linked, about. But it's today. not a direct yeah, poaching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're really talking about today when we're talking about poaching, and I'm sure some of you will be sitting there going, well, Matt, we know what poaching is, right? But we really want to emphasize what we're talking about here is you know you've got a talented the competitor that you want, and you directly go to them and make overtures either by yourself or, or a recruiter, or a recruiter yeah. as your agent to try to get them to leave their current employment and come to you. And, look, poaching's been happening since, you know, time and <laughs> memoriam when it comes to getting new employees. But the context that we just talked about, the war for talent, the labour supply limitations, it makes it a very different beast yeah. than it was even Much a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, what we are seeing anecdotally is competitors, when they lose, I mean, think about it like this really, just as you're desperate to keep in your talent, so too are your competitors, you know. And so if you're out there sort of poaching their talent, they're desperate to hold on to them. And what anecdotally we're starting to see is a greater appetite from competitors when they do have an employee be poached to not just come after that employee, which we'll touch on briefly, yeah. but to come after you, you as yeah, the new to employer. To litigate, yeah. Yeah, to really start to litigate those because where once if they lost a good person, there were sort of 10 people in the line behind them to fill them, now fill that no line, one. there's no one there, yeah. right? So although cost is tight, money is tight, we're seeing just more willingness to spend legal fees on those sorts of things. So what are the sort of things there? There's really two that we're talking about in terms of litigation. One which we've touched on in the last couple of weeks, which is a post-employment restraint. But that's, look, pursuing injunctions, account of profits, damages, but it's against the actual employee based on the terms of their contract. That's right. But more the focus on today, which a lot of people forget about, is... Yeah, it's the tort of interference with contractual relations mm -hmm. or the tort of inducing a breach of conduct in, uh, contract. Excuse me. And what's really important about this is it's your competitor going after you mm. for your acts of helping that person breach the contract. And then uh, there's really five elements to it, aren't there? Can you run us through those? Yeah, so there has to be a contract in existence. Got to be a contract? Yeah, that can be written or oral, yep. as we all know. You, The poacher has to know about the contract. Yep. That doesn't mean you have to know the specific of the clauses, just know that a contract is in existence. You have to know that any kind of breach or failure to do something would be a breach of the contract. Of that contract, yeah. And you must induce the breach of the contract and it must result in loss and damage. That's right, to the competitor yes, in that space. Right. And, look, importantly, the courts will say, look, you don't necessarily need to know all the details of the contract, but it's a, we will, you know, willful blindness or reckless indifference to you doing that person, you inducing someone to yeah. breach their contract and not knowing exactly that it would be a breach or being willfully blind to it, it'll be assumed to be knowledge yeah. in this You can't pretend you don't yeah. it doesn't exist. That's right. So it's really it's, it's not enough it's not enough to defend a claim in this space to simply say I've not seen the contract really. The courts will say, well look and, and in employment it's really important. And I think just given timing then and we might skip yeah. the seven network one and we'll just use an example of a case called Employshore and McMurphy, 
What this case really shows, employee sure he had a, a you know, long-tenured employee who was working on a particular HR program and its competitor, Elmo Software, had a competing product. <laughs> it then poached this particular individual, McMurphy, from employee sure. And importantly, Elmo Software didn't, you know, didn't see, didn't know what was in the terms of the contract from EmployShore in McMurphy. But what they did do and what the court did say was, well, look, McMurphy, he actually didn't finish his notice period. You know, he gave four weeks notice when he was re required to give three months. Yeah. And he commenced working for Elmo Software while he was still an employee mm -hmm. of EmployShore. So EmployShore had an action against McMurphy in that space for a breach of his fiduciary duties using his knowledge and his efforts when he should have been giving them to EmployShore to Elmo Software. And Elmo and Software, to his, to his yeah. advantage, that's right. And Elmo Software was uh, liable for tort of inducing a breach of contract because although they hadn't seen his contract, they knew that he should have been working for his employer at the time, or EmployShore, and they had him come work for them. So even and though they. To poach other employees too. That's yeah. right. So although they hadn't seen the contract, that was enough. So, real warning that we just want to make here about poaching is look, you really just need to reassess your risk appetite for poaching in this current context. You know, not necessarily that you, you know, it's not enough that you haven't seen the contract, but thinking about, look, what is the appetite my competitor to litigate against me? Is the person I'm going after really key and central to them? And are they going to feel aggrieved? I think that's really the key practical takeaway for this. All right, we'll look on to the, uh, the case, case study. study, which you've already heard me talk a lot, but it's my turn <laughs> uh, this week to read it out. All right, and we did have an argument about whether it was Ewan or Ewan. Now, I emphasise <laughs> no, that Ewan. Ewan, sorry, that's right. Now, Nina said, Matt, you have to say that it was Ewan, even though I knew it was Ewan. But that's just for Andrew to know that he didn't trip us up. All right, Ewan was a CFO at DimTech, a multinational technology business. His annual REM package was in excess of $1 million. DimTech's main product was an app to help commercial clients manage their electricity, gas, internet and telephone needs in one place providing them with the best prices and client outcomes. Ewan also mentored at the Mentone Business School for MBA students specialising in tech startups. The CEO at DimTech had approved the role. Ursula, one of Ewan's MBA mentees, didn't trip me up on that one, Andrew, graduated in 2020. As she launched with her own startup, LightUp, she leaned on Ewan for business modelling help. He also provided her with seed capital of over 100 I think that's meant to be $1,000 rather than kilometres, giving him a 25% shareholding in LightUp. LightUp had also developed an app similar to Dimtex, except it was for domestic users in Australia. At the time of helping her in making the financial investment, Dimtech had started to develop an app for domestic users. Ewan had no access to the technology, but did know about the financial negotiations with suppliers in Australia. In August 2020, LightUp started a capital raise with two entrepreneurial businesses, one of the owners, Boris Petrovsky, undertook due diligence and saw that Ewan had shares in LightUp and was also the CFO of DimTech. Boris's, Boris told his best friend, Sylvia, who happened to be chair of DimTech. Two days later, Ewan's employment with DimTech was summarily terminated. All right, so three questions today. So please scan the QR code. Don't download the QR code, as no. Paper Andrew would say. <laughs> yeah. Never listen to Andrew. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Look, it's a bit of an interesting fact scenario, this one, I think. Yeah, something that actually happens probably more than we realise. Well, that's right, you know, particularly in this startup entrepreneurial space, you know, we've got mm. lots of individuals as our, you know, Sydney team and Sydney clients would know. And the um, you, yeah, that's right, and the, and the basements here. 
they're often individuals who have their sort of, they've got a lot of hats, they've got a lot of yeah. rings, you know, there's um, lots of different and things. And it's a moving space, so it's very common for, like, them to jump between startups. Well, exactly well. right. And yeah. there's often times where it's a little bit of overlap, you know, yeah. I'm working in entrepreneurial, uh, you know, investment A, I'm yeah. interested in entrepreneurial investment They often B. are involved in a couple of startups. That's right, and involved in lots of different capacities as yeah. well. So, you know, employee, investor, shareholder, director. So there's a lot of potential for there to be some real overlap and some real potential issues in this space. All right, so question number one, was you an acting in conflict of his interests with Dimtech? Oh, unquestionably, yes. Yes, yeah. Like he had knowledge, inside knowledge of it all, and he was clearly using it to his own advantage. Mm. He'd invested in a competitor. It was crazy. That's right. So even though in, in the fact scenario, look, he didn't have the specific knowledge of this specific product, I think. But he knew it was happening. Well, that's right. And in the circumstances, what a court would likely look at and say is, look, you as an employee during this time, remembering as the CFO, so remembering he was an employee, mm-hmm. wasn't a director, but he is an employee. It's effectively he owes those duties of loyalty to uh, Dimtech, which he wasn't really complied with, the fiduciary duties as well. Effectively, he, uh, he had an obligation really to put in his full effort and time yeah. to that business, to Dimtech. Good faith, yeah. yeah. And really, although the role as the mentor was improved, approved, excuse me, by Tim Tech. The role is sort of active An investor, yeah, as well. Investor, advisor in the other business wasn't. So no. absolutely acting in conflict of his interests, yeah. uh, his obligations. Highly doubt he disclosed that. No, <laughs> no. Well, that's why as it gets discovered later on, the hammer falls in yeah. terms of the summary dismissal. Um, so question two, yeah, did, did you ever breach his corporation's law obligations? Look, again, yes, no. So here... It's sort of a Section 183 of the Corporations Act. So, you know, maybe arguable about whether, you know, he was an officer of the business. He's clearly not a director on the fact scenario, but he is an employee and he did have access to that sort of confidential information about the app. Now, it says in the fact scenario, you know, he didn't have access to the technology per se, but he didn't know about the financial arrangements. Mm-hmm. And there was a real possibility in his employment that he could use that information to the detriment of Dimtech. And to some degree, the fact scenario indicates that that probably was quite likely here. He must have known that there was an appetite for this based on not only his conversations with his former mentee, yeah. but for the fact that he invested 25%, yeah. you know, the 100000 And he it's knew a his suppliers were interested, so he definitely was going to use that knowledge. Well, exactly yeah. right. You know, in contrast to, say, sort of a normal entrepreneurial circumstance, it wasn't as if he was throwing his money behind something that he had no knowledge about. You know, he knew that the market was there because his own employer was engaging with the key players, the key suppliers in that market space. So okay. big yes to big question yes, two. Yeah. Big yes. You know, <laughs> let's add that to the cash basis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so question three, uh, was his termination flawed because of a lack of procedural fairness? And Nina? Clearly there was no procedural no, fairness. No, it's a yes again on this one, yeah. three yeses But, like, today. also it's not as relevant because he made a million dollars. A million here. dollars. A million He's definitely dollars. not going to file an unfair dismissal claim. No, that's right. And Jurisdictionally yeah, bad for sure. Procedural fairness is not relevant to general protection. So. Yes, procedurally fair, unfair, but what could he really do with that? That's right. You know, look, there's nothing here in the fact scenario that gives us an inkling or a hint that there could be something general protections-based. You know, obviously the termination in that way without the procedurally fair process, well, the termination itself, it's adverse action. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. But what is the workplace right? Well, yeah. a little bit unclear here. <laughs> um, 
What I would say generally is, you know, I think one of the things I always sort of advise in this space is, you know, even with your over high income threshold employees, putting in a procedurally fair process, at least giving them an opportunity to respond to allegations and so on, it's a wise move to make because employees who are terminated unexpectedly, and there's no doubt that you would, they tend to go looking for what they think are the other might be the reason why their employee was terminated. And someone with a million dollars a year in their pocket has got money to play with in terms of litigating this and making big moves in that space. So, look. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be a valid claim, just they'll drag you through the media. That's right, that's right. And, and, you know, through the Fair Work Commission, I mean, it's just over $100 to put an application form in. I think that's the thing to always remember. And in the hands of a good plaintiff lawyer, you know, they'd have a field day with this one. They really would. You'd find you'd get a list or a a letter from a particular plaintiff employment (laughs) firm that we've all Saying, alleging sixteen different, alleging sort of sixteen different exercises of workplace rights that you would never have seen. So, look, yes, there was flawed because of a lack of procedural fairness, less of a risk for the unfairness missile, but uh, you know, general protections risk there. So, look, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week and uh, tuning in to see Paper Andrew (laughs) contribute. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. If you could please, uh, you know, like, react react on the LinkedIn post. We we really value your engagement. We love all the comments that we received. We we just just ran out of time. (laughs) Absolutely. And, look, we'll try to get to those which we see. But thank you so much for your engagement. It helps us heaps. Um, And uh, we hope to see you tune in next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.